Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Well, hello there and welcome to Loving Liberty. Join the conversation at 801-331-8113. couple of items of business to take care of right at the beginning of our broadcast. Uh, all week, uh, actually for the last week and a half or so, we've been advertising an upcoming event at Liberty Hall. It's part of our Liberty Hall lecture series. And that is uh, Alex Newman, wonderful journalist, writes for the New American Magazine. And uh, he uh, was going to be speaking tomorrow morning at Liberty Hall because of some of the developments that have taken place here in the state of Utah, particularly uh, Governor Herbert has asked that uh, we don't congregate in groups larger than 100. Um, That gathering has been canceled. And I know that there's there are people will take this one of two ways. Oh, good. You know, you guys are avoiding the prospect of, you know, gatherings that might spread coronavirus. Or you're thinking, well, why would you knuckle under the, to the fear and give in to the panic? Which seems like, you know, you're you're look, you're you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. OK, either way, somebody's going to say, why would you do that? Um, in this case, I think this is probably the right call. And, and I say that based on. Was yesterday not the weirdest day for most of us that, that, that we've seen within memory? This is particularly true if you were brave enough to get out there and venture into uh, one of the larger grocery stores, Walmart, or one of the big box stores like Costco or Sam's Club. My son actually works at a, at a local pharmacy. In, I'm not going to name names here because I, I don't want to jeopardize his job at all. Um, but he works for, it's a, it's a big store it's a big chain grocery store and when he got home last night i mean he got off work at nine o'clock it was a little after 10 when he rolled through the door and my wife and i were both sitting up and waiting for him because we were both a little bit anxious just because we'd heard some some crazy stories about what was going on police being called out to quell fights over toilet paper at uh, the local walmart you know it was like really and and so we asked him what was it like and he said i've never seen anything like it he said the, the lines were so long of people waiting to check out that for him to get from the pharmacy where he worked back to the office to where he could clock out, he had to walk around the entire perimeter of the store just to get there. Parking lot absolutely packed. And, you know, this was, again, this is 9 o'clock at night. Craziness. People were just in, in a state of, uh, if we don't get what we need right now, you know, it's, it's never going to be available again. You know, it was, it was like the end of days is upon us. And by the way, that extended to people wanting to uh, get their prescriptions filled. I guess the presumption that, uh, hey, I, I can't afford to run out of, out of uh, my prescription drugs. And, and I'm not downplaying those concerns, but it's a little bit spooky when a lot of people get that idea at the same time. This is something we've talked about many times on this program. You want to have your preparations as squared away as you can beforehand so you're not one of the people rushing down to the store in a panic trying to get your hands on anything. Now, I have to confess, after hearing that, I realized, you know, we are a little bit low on dog food. And it's not like my dog won't eat anything that we offer him, but uh, we we wanted to make sure that we were covered. So I, I told my son, I said, I think I think I'm going to get up at five o'clock when your store opens and uh, just go down there and see if there's dog food. If I can grab a bag of dog food, we'll be set. 
you know, it'll, it'll last us for a month or better. And both of my adult sons were like, well, yeah, well, I want to come. So at five o'clock in the morning, there we were, we show up at the store and there is a crowd of more than a hundred people standing out there in the cold, waiting for the store to open. And by the way, the parking lot filling with cars as we went in there. And I just went, holy cow, this could be a very interesting day, not only for the store workers, but also for the combat shoppers. So we went in and there were some places where, you know, clearly a lot of stuff had been bought up. Um, some empty shelves, not to, you know, uniform empty shelves throughout the store, but enough that you realize, wow, people were were really serious about getting what they felt they needed. And so in addition to the dog food, I got a couple other little items, a little more cooking oil, which you can never have too much of. Paper plates on the off chance that uh, the water we have stored, you know, is going to be needed for something other than washing dishes and, you know, just a couple little items like that. Nothing major. We were on our way by 515. We were headed out, but that parking lot was filling up. Oh, and yes, I'll confess this because someday... Uh, someday my sin will be shouted from the rooftop, but um, I did grab one package of toilet paper, a small one. I left a big family-sized one for, for somebody who needs it more, but just on the principle of the matter, we were here, we braved the crowds, so I grabbed a small package of Charmin, and I kind of got a kick out of my son holding it up above his head and doing the Rawr! combat roar of, you know, v- victory <laughs> as we as we were taking it out of the car. But that was my story of of going to face the the madness. I don't know if it has tapered off. I work from home, and today I've made it a point to pretty much stick around home. But I can tell you that uh, the people I talk to, I don't care where they are, all over the country, whether they are in Texas, whether they are in Utah, in Idaho, any other places, Ohio, there is a real sense of a strange vibe. And I think it's fear. I really think that, that fear is the the driving force here. It's it's the uh it's the dynamic that's powering what's going on. And I can only hope that, you know, some semblance of, of normalcy returns, but uh it was it was very interesting. You know, all the talk about, well, we ought to see if we can get the schools to do their work online. Colleges and universities in my home state of Utah, you know, told students, yeah, we're going to be moving, you know, all the lecture type classes to online. I know my wife is undergoing training for her public school teaching job where they're going to be uh, looking at at bringing the kids in to uh, to perhaps uh, do their their learning from home. But the real thing that, that at least for me gave it some gravity, the point where I went, "Ooh, wow, this actually is a little bit more serious is when the church I belong to, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, not only indicated that they weren't going to be holding conference in the conference center, which holds like twenty or 30,000 people, but they actually canceled all gatherings. The young men and young women meet each week from each congregation. That's not happening. Other weekly congregational meetings, like in other words, church on Sunday, not happening. I've never seen that happen before in my life. And and I don't know, you know, this is not to suggest, and therefore, because it was coming from religious leaders, we can take it more seriously than anything else. But clearly, they, uh, they're they not taking chances, as are a lot of businesses. And so, yeah, you can make of it what you will. When government tells me you have to do this because fear, <laughs> I'm inclined to push back and say, nah, uh, you just you just want more power. 
But when it was coming from church authorities, I was like, I may, I may have to give this a little more serious consideration. At any rate, it was a huge mental shift for me. And I suspect I'm probably not alone. Let's open up the phones. 801-331-8113. By the way, when, uh, when we get back from our break here in a few minutes, I'll share with you an article from Annie Holmquist about fighting fear in uncertain times. Very timely advice. I think you'll like it. To the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. Hey, Brian. How you doing, buddy? Hanging in there. How about you? I'm, I'm doing the same. You know, I, I, uh, I took my son to Costco yesterday. Wow. You are brave. Well, you know, I kind of, I like to have a good food supply in my house. And uh, I kind of got a, it's, I let it dwindle down a little bit. And under the circumstances, I figured I'd go for it. But I took my son with me, which was great because he got to experience that and kind of understand, you know, just life in general with people and population and what could happen. But I got to say, you know, I was online for a really long time. But the, the trick was to put him in line with the empty shopping cart, and I just went around and kept filling it. Ah. Smart. As soon as I got there. But, you know, I really enjoyed talking to the people. And, you know, it made me ponder on... We have the privilege of living in one of the greatest experiments of mankind in this country. And, And I think the people of this country are resilient, and I think we're going to be okay. I think I think we will too. It's that short-term sense of unease and even mild panic that that was giving me cause for concern. Just because, uh, wow, there were people literally fighting over things like toilet paper. Yeah, there's. Uh, it's sad, you know. It really is because, you know, first thing that comes to mind is, in such a case, there's other alternatives, and that's where you're resilience mindset kicks in and you know i wish people would use that more rather than panic i'm with you there hey i got a break away here we've got our break coming up thank you so much for your call by the way he just shared one of the greatest life hacks any of you will ever find put your kid with the empty shopping cart in line to check out and then you know if you have more than one person go fill that cart up and by the time you get to check out eh, you're good to go Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I don't know whether to rejoice or feel regretful for when there is such an obvious driver of conversation. It's not like, gee, what could we possibly talk about today? There's a lot that we could talk about. The the question I have to ask is, okay, is it going to be something that's worthwhile, something that is uplifting, something that's empowering, rather than just feeding whatever fear or misgivings people might have. And that's a very that's a very real concern for me. I don't want to make things worse. I don't want to add to whatever burden you may be carrying today. But I definitely want to, to cover a couple of things. I, I want to share something here with you that I think is, is possibly the most positive thing that I have seen in the last couple of days. And this is from a friend of mine in southern Utah. He says, I am typically a very positive person. My glass is almost always half full. 
He says, at 40 years old, I feel great. I'm not diabetic. I'm free of disease. My lungs are strong. I work a lot, but I have great flexibility. And where he lives, he says, it makes it easy for him to get to any part of the valley that he lives in. So he says, with that said, if you or someone you know is concerned about being out in public, he says, I'm happy to pick up prescriptions, groceries, pet food, human food, etc. I'm here to help and seriously happy to do it. Please don't feel bad for asking. I understand this is a scary time. And if I can serve, reach out. And he posted his phone number. This is legitimately his phone number. Now, I'm sharing this with you just to illustrate. This is the upside of crazy, unsettling, sometimes scary times that we live in. And there are still a lot of unknowns. And I promise you, this individual has to deal with those same unknowns and those same concerns in his life. But I love that his attitude is, I know that there are people who actually have a more difficult situation. How can I be of service to them? And I'm just throwing this out there that if all of us would take that same approach, whether you do it the way he did or even on a smaller scale, just ask your neighbors right around you. Is there something I can help you with? Is there anything that you are in need of? Can you see how that would shift your attitude or at least shift your mentality out of panic, crisis, uh, got to hang on to whatever I've got for dear life, to more of a problem-solving mindset? I don't know. Maybe I'm the only person this makes sense to. Maybe I'm just, I'm fooling myself. But that seemed like a brilliant way to approach it. And so I tip my hat to Scott. You are a man among men for taking this approach and and meaning it. Seriously, he says, call me. It is not an inconvenience. I want to help. I need to get more of that attitude going in my life. Let me share with you an article here from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org. Fighting fear in uncertain times. This goes very nicely with, with my friend Scott's gesture. She says, recently a friend asked me, what's it like over there? Pretty quiet, she replied, rainy, normal, looking out the window. Life seems fine. But she says it's when one looks away from the peaceful window scene and begins looking at headlines that the sky seems to be falling. Whether it's the threat of viruses, the implosion of the stock market, a potential job loss, or even the next election, fear creeps in quickly. And then she asks, how do we handle that fear? Do we dismiss it entirely and become flippant in our response to life's challenges? Do we yield to it, hunkering down and putting the Y2K preppers of yore to shame? Annie Holmquist says it's a delicate balancing act, particularly when we are facing the unknown. Yet we are not the first to wrestle with the reality of fear, nor will we be the last. And I love the example that she uses. She says, take Dietrich Bonhoeffer. A German theologian and pastor in the 1930s, Bonhoeffer became famous for resisting the Nazi regime and for his role in an attempted assassination of Hitler, actions for which he paid the ultimate price. Now, you have to remember, the winds of change were beginning to roar in early 1933. Hitler's rise to German Chancellor, the burning of the Reichstag, the rise of the Third Reich were fast approaching, and Bonhoeffer likely sensed the fear that these changes caused and sought to comfort his congregation, describing the warning signs and the dangers that fear brings. Tell me if any of these sound familiar. Fear destroys. 
Fear gnaws away at the inmost being of a person. It hollows out their insides until their resistance and strength are spent and they suddenly break down, Bonhoeffer explained. It also destroys their connections to God and others that are vital in the face of need and danger. Number two, fear mocks. When a person is in the grip of fear, fear leers at that person, blasting him with mocking words. I believe this is a direct quote from from Bonhoeffer. Here we are all by ourselves, you and I. Now I'm showing you my true face. And anyone who has seen naked fear revealed, who has been its victim in terrifying loneliness, fear of an important decision, fear of a heavy stroke of fate, losing one's job, an illness, fear of a vice that one can no longer resist, to which one is enslaved, fear of disgrace, fear of another person, fear of dying. That person knows that fear is only one of the faces of evil itself, one form by which the world at enmity with God grasps for someone. Number three, fear weakens. Fear takes away a person's humanity, Bonhoeffer explains, distorting him and taking away his dignity. He said, this is not what the creature made by God looks like. This person belongs to the devil, this enslaved, broken down, sick creature. Number four, fear enslaves. A sign that fear has made us its slaves that we give up and don't even want to find a way out. Those who have been conquered by fear can become dull and insensitive, brooding gloomily and doggedly along, but too apathetic to take their own lives. On the other end of the spectrum, those consumed by fear are noisy and let everyone know about it in the form of crying and complaining. Number five, fear boasts. Bonhoeffer says, still others, on the other hand, think they can drive out their fear with fine words and bold fantasies, and if they shout these words loudly enough, it may seem to take care of things for a while. That is why we become apathetic, why we complain, why we intoxicate ourselves with this and that. When we see these symptoms of fear cropping up in our lives, what can we do? Well, Bonhoeffer had an answer for that as well. He said, the human being doesn't have to be afraid. We should not be afraid. That is what makes humans different from all other creatures. In the midst of every situation where there is no way out, where nothing is clear, where it is our fault, we know that there is hope, and this hope is called, Thy will be done. Yes, Thy will is being done. This world must fail. God stands above all, His thoughts unswayed, His word unstayed. His will forever our ground and hope. End quote. Now, Annie Holmquist says many today might scoff at such advice. After all, religion is in decline. Many in the growing group of religious nuns express disbelief in God or any higher power. But she says, look at Bonhoeffer's life. He stood strong in the midst of tremendous fears, even his final fear of death by hanging. A death he faced, as one witness described him, brave and composed. Clearly, Bonhoeffer practiced what he preached. Might we do well to follow his example? I think she has a point. And again, tying this in with my friend who made the offer, if you are afraid, for whatever reason, you're having difficulty getting out. I will help you. If you need me to pick up your medicine, if you need me to pick up milk, if you need me to get pet food, if you need me to get human food, whatever it is, I am here to help you. I mean, that's, that's the least fear-based thing that I have heard for the last several days. And I'm just hoping I'm not alone in the, the kind of uh, 
strength that it creates in my heart. It really does. It strengthens my resolve. It gives me a sense of peace. It gives me a sense of hope. It makes me want to step up and be better today than I was yesterday. As opposed to hunker down and just hope that I can survive the apocalypse. Seems like a good way to snap out of it. I think I'm going to have to put it to the test. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I think I'm probably trying to talk myself off the ledge more than anything, but uh, if you want to join the conversation, you can jump in as well. We've got Jared on the line. Hi, Jared. Welcome to the show. You bet. Everybody's equally important. We are not helpless. There's millions of us, hundreds of millions of us. Every, If you need 10 feet of chain, every link is equally important, and every link is vital. But people sit there, and they believe the powers of darkness of this world, that they're helpless, there's nothing we can do. How crazy is that? Millions of people telling themselves they're helpless. That's okay. That's a good point. Even in wheelchairs, Brian, a million man army in wheelchairs is a force that he dealt with. No, I, I, I don't are. disagree. Yeah, yeah. You see all these Facebook videos, 35,000, 50,000, 100,000 views, but it's the same 10 people that show up to make a little bit of a difference. Crazy. No, it, it really is. And it's a kind of learned helplessness, or at least I, I believe it is. We're trained from a very young age, you know, age five for most of us. You need to wait for someone in authority to tell you it's okay to do something. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, that's the pur- purpose of kindergarten. Learn how to get in line. Learn how to wait your turn and ask permission. True. I don't know what to do to snap people out of it. Again, millions of us, we can do whatever we want in righteousness or wickedness. We could do whatever we want. And you could, you, I could take the wickedness angle. Silence is consent. The only reason children are taken by the police and put into foster care where they're molested is because the neighborhood allows it. The only reason that gun owner in Maryland got murdered by the police yesterday was because the neighborhood allowed it, gave them a pass, watched it happen, turned their back. Good Samaritans are rare, my friend. No, I hear you. There's, good, yeah, it's, e- it's, e- was, it's easier to embrace the group think than to actually think independently, embrace that personal responsibility, and run the risk that you're going to do something that others don't agree with. There is a little bit of risk. and But but, but when there's so many of you, it's not really that scary. Yeah, being a Bonhoeffer, he knew he was going to die because he was alone, and he knew he was alone. And all those Christians that listened to him or whatever, they didn't show up. The only reason Jesus was crucified was because, of, well, as an example, any outrage, any travesty that goes down is because the people let it happen. They just watch it happen, whether it's a lynching, 
whether it's a kangaroo court and a railroad job, which is every day, whatever. It, people let it happen. We do have government by the consent of the governed. Yep. Nodding my head in agreement. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I think it's, you're doing it in, in your own way. I know you're you're very active and and you continually try to bring this to people's attention, particularly those who are part of the system who are just quote doing my job. You're you're one of the people who talks to them and and works to <laughs> to get their conscience activated once more. Yeah, yeah. Bonhoeffer called the cops out too, and they hung him. But anyway, probably a lesson in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jared, hey, thank Brian, you. Great show. 801-331-8113. By the way, I, th- there is still some humor to be found, and I, I can't tell you the debt of gratitude that I feel for the Babylon Bee. Here's a headline. This will give you an example. My friend sent me this earlier this afternoon. Nations nerds wake up in utopia where everyone stays inside, sports are canceled, social interaction forbidden. <laughs> Ah, they're so good. They're so good. I understand that uh, my friend Kate Daly is actually going to be interviewing the uh, editor of the Babylon Bee on her show a little bit later this afternoon. Maybe that's something that uh, that you should consider checking out. Here's another bright spot. Now, you won't think it's bright from the headline, but I'll, I'll explain why after I tell you the headline. This is from USA Today. Students suspended from school for selling squirts of hand sanitizer to classmates. Oh, yeah. The article says, as coronavirus panic reaches a fever pitch and the World Health Organization officially calling it a pandemic, some people have taken advantage of people's anxiety for a quick buck. I'm going to put another spin on that. Some people have seen a need in the market and responded accordingly by providing value. Now, that includes one teenager in the United Kingdom who was suspended from school for the day for selling squirts of hand sanitizer to his friends at Dixon's Unity Academy in Leeds. Jenny Tompkins posted her son's money-making schemes on Facebook Wednesday, where it amassed nearly 198,000 reactions and 98,000 comments, much of which praised his entrepreneurial savvy. Very hard to discipline this behavior when his dad phones him from work to call him a blank legend, Tompkins wrote on Facebook. One poster called him a very enterprising lad. Now, in all, he made just a little over $11 from his little grift after selling each squirt for 64 cents. What are the proceeds to be used for? Well, Tompkins says he purchased a bag of Doritos and planned to buy a kebab with the rest of his cash. And, of course, this reminder from USA Today... Centers for Disease Control and Prevention prefers plain old hand washing with soap and water, which eradicates all germs over hand sanitizer. Look, I'm not saying the solution is for everybody to figure out, hey, how can I turn a buck on uh, what's going on here? But I got to admire this kid for not just hunkering down in fear and just waiting for someone to tell him, okay, stand there, do this, wash your hands. Okay, now go cower over there. I mean, that's pretty enterprising. This is the kind of mentality that we need. If for no other reason, it's, it's not the mentality of a slave. That entrepreneurial mindset, even though this is kind of an odd way to do it. Yeah, man, I'll give you a shot of hand sanitizer. It'll cost you 64 cents. 
He must have done well, though. 64 cents. How many times does that go into 11 bucks? Yeah. He was able to find a need, meet a need, market it to his target audience, and he uh, received a pretty good uh, return on his investment. At least I don't think it would cost more than $11 for a bottle of hand sanitizer. Now, did it, did it solve the problem of coronavirus? No, but there are scientists that are working on that. What it did solve was the problem of people who were wishing they had hand sanitizer, who didn't, and who valued that squirt of hand sanitizer for which he was charging 64 cents more than they valued the 64 cents in their pocket. That's a free market at work there. And those who were saying, well, he took advantage. Nobody forced anybody to, to buy that from him. Like I say, they wanted what he had to sell. They made the choice to cough up the money. Maybe that's a poor choice of terms. To hand over the money. And, and uh, he made a little bit of buck, a buckage on it. Can you see the difference in approaching things with that mentality rather than the, the mentality of, but somebody in authority has to do this for me. Somebody else is smarter than me and must make all of these decisions. I think he set a fine example for us. I'd like to see more people following in his footsteps. All right, shifting gears here. While we have all been hyper-focused on coronavirus and all the various effects that we're seeing throughout our culture, throughout our society, throughout our economy, did you realize that uh, politicians have been working hard to, uh, to pass legislation? This is the name of it. Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act of 2020. Eliminating Abusive and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act. Earn it. This is talking about your privacy. And the article here talks about the wily coyotes of the Internet. U.S. Senators Lindsey Graham and Richard Blumenthal are sure that this time they have found a made-to-order tool that can take out the roadrunner or those meddling kids, the uh, First Amendment and Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. It's the Earn It Act, which will finally allow them to deprive you of access to the strong encryption that protects your privacy. So they, as well as every hacker on the planet, can snoop on you at will. Now, here's the cartoon character genius and deviousness of the Earn It Act. It doesn't actually outlaw strong encryption, encryption rather, nor does it require companies to cripple their products with back doors for law enforcement. What it does is it creates a commission to establish, quote, best practices for Congress to pass into law. Now, what could possibly be the harm in doing something like that? Well, the Earn It Act would deprive any Internet platform that doesn't implement those best practices of its Section 230 protection from liability for content created by parties other than itself. What do you suppose those best practices look like? Well... We'll talk about that just the other side of these commercial messages. Somebody's not letting a good crisis go to a waste. And while our attention is all over here on the virus and the ensuing panic, lawmakers in Washington, D.C. are up to something a little bit devious. More details coming up after these messages.
Hey, once again, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I know we're all concerned with having enough toilet paper and staying alive through this, uh, uh, this, this horrible disease, coronavirus. Yes, I'm being a little sarcastic, but what about your privacy? Yeah, this uh, Earn It Act that uh, officials in Congress are trying to pass through. I, uh, I'm i glad that there's someone who's blowing the whistle on it. By the way, it's Thomas L. Knapp writing for the GarrisonCenter.org who, uh, who put this into the proper perspective. And keep in mind that uh, the Earn It Act doesn't outlaw strong encryption. It doesn't require companies to put in a backdoor for law enforcement. But it does create a commission whose job is to establish best practices for Congress to put into law. And if uh, if an Internet platform doesn't implement those best practices, well, then it doesn't have protection from liability for content created by parties other than itself. And Thomas Knapp asks the question, what kind of best practices, you might ask? Best practices for protecting user security? Nope. Best practices for protecting freedom of speech, promoting vigorous commerce in digital goods and services, etc. Nope. Best practices for preventing, identifying, disrupting, and reporting child exploitation or sexual exploitation? No. He says you had to know that these cartoon character uh, politicians were going to pull yet another for the children gag and lay it on thick. The word child and children appear nearly 300 times in the bill's text. So he says you have to know that among the first set of best practices to come down the pike will be demands that platforms prang encryption so that law enforcement can more easily read your emails, your text messages, etc. Now, if you thought the matter through, he says you probably already know that the Earn It Act and its associated best practices will not prevent or disrupt child exploitation. The strong encryption genie has been out of the bottle for decades and no number or type of best practices can stuff it back in. People who have something to hide already have and will continue to use the tools they need to hide it. The only thing that the Earn It Act will prevent or disrupt is your privacy and your freedom. Only the innocent and law-abiding among us would be affected by the Earn It Act, and the effects on good and important things like freedom and privacy would be wholly negative. Graham Blumenthal et al. certainly know this, too. And Thomas Knapp says, don't let them trick you into thinking they're just harmless idiots like Wiley Coyote. Crazy stuff. Kind of makes you wonder what else is being cooked up in the back rooms of Washington, D.C., while our attention is focused almost exclusively on the coronavirus or the economic fallout that uh, is associated with these difficulties posed by dealing with coronavirus. Crazy stuff. 801-331-8113. By the way, there was a great article from Jacob Hornberger. This one landed in my email inbox yesterday. FDR's tyrannical gold confiscation. I just mention this because I know there are a lot of people who are kind of going towards uh, gold and precious metals. They're watching their, their 401k become a 201k. I mean, no, they're, they're, they're taking a massive hit in some of their retirement savings because of the market volatility. And so they're moving towards precious metals. Yeah, 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 I'll be safer here. Well, let's not forget, or at least let's let's draw the lessons we can from what happened when FDR 
confiscated the nation's gold. Jacob Hornberger says some people say, well, I guess we'll just have to have a major economic or monetary crisis to wake the people up and cause them to want a sound monetary system. But Hornberger points out here the the big problem with that refrain is a crisis or emergency oftentimes induces people to move in the opposite direction. In other words, in the direction of tyranny and oppression. That's because a major crisis or emergency, people become so afraid that they're willing to sacrifice their liberties for some pretense of safety or security that government officials are offering them. And of course, the trade is always sold as being temporary. As soon as the crisis or emergency is over, government officials say they promise to restore the rights and liberties of the people. Now, a good example of this phenomenon took place in 1933 when President Franklin Roosevelt issued an executive order commanding every American to deliver his gold coins to the federal government. And Jacob Hornberger says it would be difficult to find a better example of dictatorship and tyranny than that. After all, gold coins and silver coins had been the official money of the American people for more than 125 years. That was the official money established by the Constitution, which gave the federal government the power to coin money, not print money. The Constitution had also expressly prohibited the states from making anything but gold and silver coins legal tender. Now, after the Constitution called the federal government into existence, gold coins and silver coins were issued by the U.S. government. And it was the soundest monetary, history, monetary system rather, in history. By forsaking paper money and issuing sound, credible gold coins and silver coins, the U.S. government was precluded from plundering and looting people through inflation and monetary debasement for more than a century. So America's gold coin, silver coin standard was a major contributing factor of the tremendous increase in economic prosperity and people's standard of living, especially in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Now, interestingly, some college professors today teach their students that the gold standard was a monetary system in which paper money was backed by gold. And Jacob Hornberger wisely points out nothing could be further from the truth. There was no paper money. The official money of the American people, as established by their constitution, consisted of coinage, meaning gold coins and silver coins. The constitution permitted the federal government to borrow money, and such loans came in the form of federal bills, notes, and bonds. Now, sometimes people used these debt instruments to transact business, but everyone knew that they were all promises to pay money. In other words, promises to pay gold and silver, not money themselves. The bills were not money themselves, in other words. So let's talk about the Fed and the Great Depression. In 1929, after a decade of extreme monetary manipulation by the Federal Reserve, which had been called into existence in 1913, the stock market suffered an enormous collapse, an event that led to the crisis and emergency known as the Great Depression. It was that major crisis and economic emergency that Roosevelt seized upon to confiscate the gold coin holdings of the American people. For some reason, he chose not to also confiscate their, their silver coins. Now, notice something about FDR's action. The Constitution, which provided for a gold coin, silver coin monetary system, can only be amended through the process outlined in the Constitution. And Roosevelt certainly did not go through that process. Instead, he simply used the emergency to justify his nullification of the Constitution by executive decree. 
and his action is a perfect example of how crises and emergencies can result in tyranny and oppression. If an American failed to comply with Roosevelt's order, he was subject to being targeted by federal officials with arrest, prosecution, a felony conviction, as well as fine and imprisonment. And while there were no doubt some Americans who refused to comply and kept their gold hidden, most Americans dutifully complied with FDR's commands. Now, in return, they received federal debt reserve, federal reserve debt instruments, rather. The problem, of course, was that while those debt instruments had previously promised to pay money or gold or silver, now they were irredeemable. That is, they effectively promised to pay nothing. Moreover, shortly after people turned in their gold, Roosevelt intentionally devalued the debt instruments the people were holding in relationship to gold. In one fell swoop, he had imposed enormous financial losses for the American people. Why did Americans go along with this revolutionary and illegal transformation of their monetary system and this tyrannical and communist-like nationalization of their gold holdings? Well, there's one simple reason. The crisis had made them deathly afraid. And when people are overly afraid, they're willing, sometimes even eager, to trade away their liberty for safety and security that public officials are offering them. Hornberger says no doubt many Americans convinced themselves that once the crisis or emergency was over, federal officials would restore their gold coin, silver coin standard. But it never happened. Federal officials were able to use their new paper money standard to finance the ever-burgeoning expenses of the welfare warfare state way of life that FDR was introducing to America. And he says gradually, as the result of, a result of the debasement of paper money from ever-increasing inflation of the money supply, silver coins were driven out of circulation. Today, while Americans are once again permitted to old gold, own gold rather, at least for now, the official money of the American people remains paper money, notwithstanding the express terms of the, of the Constitution. So with his gold confiscation scheme, FDR taught Americans a very valuable lesson. Emergencies and crises are the time-honored way that people are induced to sacrifice their rights and liberties at the hand of their government. The question is, are we smart enough to recognize it when it's happening to us? I'd like to think thanks to the efforts of uh, people like Jacob Hornberger and the Future of Freedom Foundation, the answer is yes. With every passing day, more and more of us have our eyes open and see what's happening. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 